Hi, welcome to Such a Nightmare. This is a podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and the horrible. I am Catherine Troyer, and joining me is Anthony Tresca, and we will be looking at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares, and that text is... A 2020 The Babysitter Killer Queen. This episode is going to be a little bit different than some of our other episodes if you've listened to us in the past. Uh, usually we uh, take a, a text, a book, a movie, whatever, and then we apply an academic framework to it. However, we're going to be doing things a little bit differently since both of us just watched this film that just came out last night. We're just going to be using this opportunity to give more quick reactions because uh, if you can believe it, there hasn't been a lot of scholarship or academic frameworks written about this film in the day since it's come out. That's just mind-boggling. I mean, how are people not, like, more on top of it? The academics need to get to get off, off, off of your butts and hurry up with this academic stuff, right? So, there was on. a whole 12-hour period, right, at least, that they could have written something. What were you guys doing? You guys were all collectively sleeping? I you know. guys can't take turns? Such, such bad planning. Such a nightmare. I almost said that and I was like, no, I won't go there. So thank you for going there. Um, I think the other thing to keep in mind about this episode is that uh, a lot of times when we pick films uh, or books, it's because pun very much intended, but, but they've been haunting us, right? There's something about them that we've been dwelling on that has been either confirmed or changed by subsequent viewings. And again, um, because Anthony and I made decisions to sleep, um, like the academics did. There, we haven't had a chance to watch this film a second time. So these are these impressions, you know, may may change upon uh, subsequent viewings. Although I have a feeling that some of our major quibbles with with the film uh, will might only be reinforced on on subsequent viewings. Yeah. So I guess let's let's begin first with some good things about it. I mean, this is not a film without. Very good elements. Yeah, it. and you know, The Babysitter was uh, one of our early episodes uh, on on this podcast, in part because we we found it so delightful, um, and so we encourage you to listen to that to that podcast. But I, I bring that up because one of the things is, is that I was just excited to get back to the world. I agree. I also very much enjoyed the first film, and I liked the tone. I liked the characters. I thought the script was pretty funny, and so when I heard well when i remembered that they were doing a sequel because apparently we talked about uh the sequel on our podcast and we talked about it uh, back then but i forgot about it and then i saw a trailer for it on netflix just one day and then i got excited again and i think that that the story world still deserves excitement you know i i because there are a lot of really enjoyable moments in the film so i don't always laugh unfortunately in in comedy films they're not always funny right they don't always hit especially a lot of recent comedies have not been hitting for me um and you know while not every single joke or gag worked uh there were definitely laugh out loud moments um and and i found myself you know enjoy enjoying some of the both pop culture references but also horrors specific references but also just sort of like well 
delivered lines, especially by uh, the actors that play the parents. Yeah, Ken Marino and Leslie Bibb are always a delight, particularly Ken Marino in this film. I mean, he's given more to do than Leslie Bibb. He gets a whole subplot for himself. But they, the parents are really funny in this film. And any time that they're, they're on screen, they bring an, an energy to the film that the film uh, admittedly doesn't always have. And Ken Marino has, has built a, a career off of playing exactly the type of character he plays in this film, right? The sort of lovable... Uh, quirky. But also schmucky kind of character. Yeah, he's kind of crazy. I This is going to be a strange reference, but I've recently been re-watching the Diary of a Wimpy Kid trilogy, the films, and Steve Zahn plays the dad in those films, and they're giving very similar unhinged, chaotic performances. And I always think when I think of Ken Marino of Veronica Mars, and you know, and just and and so I think one of the thing, one of the smart decisions that was made about this film was to beef up his character. Um, and you know, oftentimes when you have a character that's the more quirky parent and a character that's supposed to be the straight laced parent, um, it feels a little tired. But some of the moments when I laughed the hardest were when um. You know, Leslie Bibb's performance where she would say, like, did you take the pot? <laughs> yes. Or, did, did you, you take, take the pot? pot? And and like, you know, and then he'd be like, who are you asking you or me? I mean, there was just something refreshing about their dynamic. I, I also I didn't feel like Leslie Bibb was totally like the straight laced normal one either. She was given her own character and personality, too. So it's not just like the oh, the husband gets to have a personality, but the wife gets to have no personality. No, she was a, a well-realized character. She's funny and very, very funny in her own right. And, you know, I, I think that this is a... I think this is something that happens for everyone um, at some point, right? Where they, as they get older, they begin to to identify more with the parent figures than they do the high school figures. Um and and I think that this film encouraged us to to empathize with the parents by kind of reminding us that of how hard it would be to have a kid that you think is as mentally um, experiencing psychotic breaks, right? And and I think that was a nice addition to the film. The film taps into one of your big fears, which is oh, uh, yeah fear of not being believed. That's the whole uh, really like narrative crutch of this film with Cole's character. And I thought that was an intriguing way to to follow up the story, right? So we know in the in, at the end of The Babysitter that B has left or disappeared, but we don't know that everyone else's has all the other bodies, right, have disappeared either. Not really. Um, and so, you know, it was nice to see like that continue on because I, I think it's a, there's a really rich field still in horror of what happens when the credits roll. Right. Um, because oftentimes our, our final girls or in this case, uh, final boy, um, they've, they've killed people, right. They've left bodies here and there. And so I thought that was kind of an interesting way to engage in the text, to engage in the, the sequel. Yeah. I, I don't know if it a hundred percent worked for me because a lot of the stakes are kind of diminished for us as the audience because we know for fact that all of this did happen and we saw it already in the first film. And so it doesn't really work for helping to build the stakes, but I think you're right. It is an intriguing idea to explore. And if it had been more, um, I think if it had, if the film had wanted, they could have gone more in the like, well, maybe 
maybe that was all a, a psychotic break and, and, and we can't trust anything that happened in the first film, right? They, I think you're right, that they could have chosen to do some things like that if they wanted to really increase the stakes. But this isn't, this wasn't a film that was about stakes, right? Um, this was a film about, um, can there be more blood and, and can we see Cole survive 2.0? You're right to some extent, although when we get more into some of the negative aspects uh, in, just a, in, in just a minute, I do want to return to this issue of stakes and how it relates to some of the tonal issues that I, that I have with the film. But you're right, yeah, it is a film that's first and foremost, it's supposed to be a comedy. And I think about half of the jokes worked for me. I, I'm not a huge fan of just referential humor for referential humor, so some of those didn't land. Like, I didn't love the whole extended Matrix bit. I also didn't love the Terminator bits either. But I liked all the horror-specific ones, mm -hmm. go figure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> we just, uh, we haven't released our episode on The Evil Dead yet, but it's coming out. And watching The Evil Dead and then watching this film, there's a ton of really clever references to The Evil Dead that I thought were really engaging. Yes, no, I, I had the exact same thoughts. Um, in fact, even to the point of being like, ooh, oh, that we won't have released that episode yet um, before we talk about this film. Later, you'll hear more about the Evil Dead. Exactly. Yay! Uh, you know, I'm also... I'm a fan of... of does he go by MCG or MCG? I don't know. I think it's MCG. Okay, let's let's not... do MCG. So, uh, you know, I'm, I've been a fan of his. I, I think that he has some, some interesting things to say about how he creates the the form of his films um it didn't you know so in in the babysitter the the sort of stylized framework i think made made the the first film richer because it was saying like you know this story um but yeah. let's see a version of it that's a little twisted i, I think that that sometimes in in the sequel some of the stylizations worked really nicely. I actually personally enjoyed the um, the little flashbacks with each of the the characters because they were so ridiculous, right? And and the like, you know, the the effect of the like eighties, um, you know, VHS tape kind of reminded you that this whole film is is a, a story that doesn't quite make sense at the same time that it's a story that's very familiar. So I, th I think sometimes it worked, but there were other times that it felt like they they needed to do it because they knew that's what fans had enjoyed about the first film. Yeah. I wasn't a huge fan of like the, the mortal combat uh, stylization sequence because I felt that it, I enjoyed personally the, the consistent style that was from the first film. While the first film did include some like jumps to other styles. I, it didn't feel as abrupt and as different as that sequence. That was just one, the Mortal Kombat sequence felt so different stylization-wise than the rest of the film, or and especially from the first film and the style of that, that it, I don't know, it, it was a little jarring for me. Some of the, some of the uh, really stylized sequence in this film just felt so disconnected. And, and I think... I think you're, the two words, right, um, jarring and disconnected, really go back to the to the that it, in the original film, the form uplifted the content, right? It, it enriched our understanding of of the narrative, whereas in this one, it did. It felt like there was often a, a disconnect where 
For example, while it was neat, if you will, to see this like Mortal Kombat-ish scene, just because I haven't seen that recently-ish, um, yeah. it wasn't, it didn't enrich my understanding of, of the two characters or, or what their relationship was to Cole, right? Like it didn't really um, make sense in that respect. I think that what we're what we're ultimately coming down on is we when you just touched on it um, when you brought up the narrative. I think that the narrative, uh, the the story that they've chosen to tell in this film is much much weaker than the story from the first film. Not less original because I would say that the the plot of the Babysitter Part One is so incredibly redundant and predictable and just we've been there done that that you're okay you're okay and you're okay with that because the form and the style is so unique and specific and you're like this is really well executed and i appreciate it in contrast i think that the narrative to this film is just a little silly and convoluted and feels too much like you remember this from the first film we're just gonna do it again with more characters um and and I, I don't know. I wasn't as into it. Yeah, so before we completely shift, uh, but this will be a good segue because you and I differ on this uh, for this film. I I have decided that if I had my druthers, uh, Bear McCreary and John Williams would work together to create the the score of my life. <laughs> and, 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 the, and if I could have such a dream, you know, that I would consider my, my life complete. Um, I know that the music didn't always work for you. Um, I just, I, I really appreciate the, the level of attention, even if maybe sometimes it may feel like over attention that McCreary pays to, to knowing that, that the music will create tone, um, and mood. And, you know, in this case, uh, a lot of the comedic elements, but these are these are reasons that the film I think for both of us you know was good enough and was enjoyable enough in the moment, um, but why I think you know we're kind of in agreement with the general consensus of the film um, in terms of its early reception, and that is is that there was just some some really fundamental foundational um, flaws, particularly about tone and and narrative, that that just sort of stripped away some of the p potential power of, of what should have been considering that we had the same cast, the same, um, you know, director and crew should have been and could have been, I think really uh, sharp. Yeah, I agree. I think that they were struggling. There, there was probably some struggle in the writer's room as to whether or not they should just try to tell a new story or if it was essential that they bring back all of the stars from the first film. And they've decided to, instead of making a decision and choosing to either focus on all on mostly new characters or go back and just do um, and just bring back the killers from the, the that group of high school stereotypes from the first film, and they just decided to do both. They didn't make a decision, and it, it works sometimes, but it really doesn't feel satisfying in either regard because you don't care about the new characters. So when they die, you're like, whatever, good. We, I didn't know. I didn't know them. I didn't know why. Why should I care about them? And then it's also you feel like that because they didn't just decide to focus on the old actors and that's the characters from the the first one that they kind of get shafted too. 
And so it's ultimately, it feels like nobody gets the time that they, that they need to be developed. And I think the consequence, in addition to just the, the lack of, of some of the character development we could have gotten, was a real tonal dissonance uh, that was actually intentionally crafted, but the, the consequences um, were problematic between the, the narrative of the new posse versus the old posse. There was a, a darkness in, in the way the interactions of the, the Melanie group that was very, very different from the um, the dynamic of, of B's group, in part because, as you mentioned before we started recording, the the Melanie group, we're supposed to see them as they've, they've evolved and changed, right? Especially Melanie, right? Like, she has made this decision to go from being sweet girl next door to uh, evil vixen. Cole and Melanie both, yeah, they've yes. gone through a lot. Whereas the old posse have literally been dead. So they they haven't evolved. No change. They are exactly the same as you remember them. For better and worse for this film, I think. Yes. And so I think that that in a film that is about the struggles of growing up, um, it doesn't quite work to have this tonal dissonance created by by both the old and new. And then add that in with, we haven't even gotten to this new character who they bring in, Phoebe, uh, played by Gina Ortega, who her plot with Cole is basically just the two of them doing trauma bonding. And it's very, very serious. And it, every time we cut to their storyline, jokes are gone. The stylization that is present in the rest of the film is mostly gone. And so it's just like these serious moments between these two trauma survivors. And you're just like, okay, this is... This is something you could have done, but I would have just rather it been more consistent because it just feels like a breakneck speed between the two tones. Like in one scene, you're doing a really elaborate blood gag where you have the blood everywhere. And that's, it's funny. Sometimes they work for me, sometimes they didn't. And then you go to the next scene and it's like, all right, we're gonna have real serious conversations now about trauma. And not just that, but the the scenes between Phoebe and Cole, that's where we get the scene of an attempted rape, right? Um, things, you know, and so suddenly we have things that are not ever going to be funny or ever be anything other than than tonally dark um, in a way that I just don't think you can do. You can't make that light in the way that you can even say a blood cult, right? And so, I, yeah, you're absolutely correct that it creates this weird thing. And so this brings me to what I think is my, my number one issue with this film. And it goes back, fortunately, to something that we talked about quite a bit, actually, in our episode on uh, the original film. So in the original film, we talked about the fact that, you know, if, if we had our druthers someday, we would make a film um, that is entirely about, uh, you know, like the main character surviving because they're quirky and they're fo quirkily following all the rules, right? Um, or whatever it might be. And that, that there was a problem in the narrative about, um, you know, that Cole needed to, to sort of take up, if you will, his, quote, masculinity in order to, to triumph over the evil. Right. And, and that was part of the growing up process, right? And even though in the, in the original film, some of the negative toxic masculinity was openly mocked by shirtless man, um, it was still, that was ultimately the only way he could survive was by learning to drive, overcoming his fears, kissing the girl, all this stuff. 
Yeah, it was he had to drop all of the stereotypically feminine traits about himself that is often associated with younger boys, these feminine traits, because again, uh, just masculinity is a socially constructed concept. And so there, these feminine traits are just feminine because we socially construct them and say yes. that they're feminine. And so he has to drop all of those and instead take up these masculine traits. And we're still seeing him struggle with that. That's, that's the same thing. And yet, by the end of this film, it's really clear uh, which side has won. What's interesting about what what the sequel does is that it it still uses that framework. Um, it's still there are still they're still interested in exploring masculinity as a concept. And sometimes they do it through very explicit ways. Some of the names that he gets called are uh, derogatory terms about women that are being applied to him as though you're clearly intended to demasculate him he's still he's still demonstrated as being you know not excelling at sports and things like that and then there's other things that on the surface don't necessarily appear quite as um much of something that is coded as feminine but that actually are so for example caring about education um you know caring being excited about things um you know dressing quirkily um, even though he's wearing a suit, it's still, you know, um, it's still somehow not, quote, masculine. And what I would have liked from this film, what I think would have been brilliant if, is if instead of the narrative being, um, but all you really need to do is just get laid, um, but um, all you need to do is step up and man up. Um, I just really wish that the the film could have said and done what we'd hoped the first film would do too, which is to say that, you know, no, it's, it's the very nature of his being weird and quirky that makes him survive. And the film tries to do that, right? Cause it's like, man, who is this kid that he just like keeps MacGyvering his way out of stuff. But that last scene uh, where he's with um, the nurse, right? Where he's suddenly wearing an outfit that is, is going to be traditionally seen as, as what, uh, you know, the cool male character should wear. Why? You know, why, why is it, the, you know, like, okay, so why, what was it about his process that was so transformative that he can't even dress the same way? I mean, I think it's ultimately because this film is about conformity and the only way that Cole is able to defeat um, his demons from the past is by literally conforming to what society tells him is the best version of a man, reclaiming his masculinity, taking it back, defeating these people, and then literally having sex with a female, which is such a thing that is tied up with the socially constructed idea of masculinity. And so one of the consequences of, of this, this conformity that, that's at play is the way that, in my opinion, um, is manifested also in the, the way that the B narrative is wrapped up. So one of the things that was really interesting about the start of um, Babysitter 2 or Killer Queen is that there's a voiceover monologue where Cole says, you know, like, but, but what do you do if you still love the person that, that like, destroyed you? Um, and, and what do you do when you still love someone and, and hate them at the same time? And I thought that was so interesting, right? Because that was really a good chunk of what made the babysitter fascinating is that, like, Cole doesn't want to hurt his, his like, favorite person in the world. Um, yeah. 
and she doesn't always want to hurt him, but but their their goals are not uh, in alignment, right? Uh, his survival, her pact with the devil. But this film took away that complication by making her, and and like took away her her strength as a character. It undermines her as a character, and with the bit that the film does with Phoebe making B uh, B. <laughs> her babysitter as well and making the pack with the devil be to save this child's life really does recontextualize a lot of the stuff from the first film and a lot of the things from this film because it's like Cole is is not having to grapple with this this character who he trusted and being evil no they were a good person the whole time it's just that in that initial uh, that that peer, that one night they had different goals and that's why they were fighting. And so I think that lessens the impact of the first film and it also lessens uh, the impact of this film as well. Yeah, it doesn't always make the events of the first film make sense, right? And Or some of the, the things or actions that she has. But I think you're right. What it really does is it undermines her. And if we're going to go, you know, if we're, if we're going to go there, it also makes her safe by putting her back into a box of what is um, traditionally scripted as, as acceptable female behavior, which is caregiving, exactly. loving, um, selflessness. Because in, in the first film, she is such the antithesis, while at the same time having many feminine characters, she's more in line with a witch in that sense. She like the, the witches being this idea that, uh, Men, the men, they were created by men because they were afraid of female power. She is very powerful in the first film, and yet this film decides to strip her of that power and then make her subservient to Cole and his quest to become more masculine. And if so, if you look at the three women that kind of give us this triad, you know, Phoebe, Melanie, and B, um, you know, we have a very obvious and problematic dichotomy being set up between Melanie and B, right? What makes Melanie monstrous? Well, it's not just that she's trying to, you know, do a blood pack. It's that she's using her sexuality to do it. Um, she's preying upon the feelings of Cole. Um, and, you know, she's denying the pure love that she could have, right, as the object of his affection by pursuing her own dreams. Now, admittedly, again, don't blood pack. But, you know, but there, there's definitely this sort of message. And I think that, you know, we Phoebe becomes a, a weird sort of thing in that that I think she's trying they set her up to kind of be um you know the somewhere in the middle of these two right that she's rebellious but she also um is is good at heart um she believes in love but she also you know has killed people right but I don't know all it does is go back to your point your excellent point that it just kind of makes her and Cole's relationships then this very peculiar trauma infused dynamic that doesn't really match the tone being set up by everything else yeah and so then we're you're just left feeling ultimately due to the culmination of all of the tonal narrative and i, I feel serious issues that it comes to depict it when it comes to depicting gender norms it, it leaves you feeling well yes some of the jokes and gags were pretty funny and there were really good st use of stylization in some points. I ultimately can't say that I think I really enjoyed this film because I was left more 
disappointed and frustrated by it. Yes. It's a film that has, that can be fun, but it's not a film that deserves the attention that I, I think Babysitter does. And that's too bad because it's going to affect, right, if we see these two films now in aggregate, right, it's going to affect how we have to interpret the Babysitter as well. This was a special episode that is dropping uh, out of our normal sequence, uh, but we will be returning back to our regularly programmed events with our episode that is going to release next week on look that is our comparison on mother and cabin at the end of the world uh, two very different texts one a film one a book and we are excited for you to experience that and we also encourage you to look out for our other special episodes that will release periodically as films that just need to be talked about right away uh, emerge indeed in the meantime you can go back and obviously listen to some more of our episodes particularly the one on The Babysitter, if you haven't listened to that one already. And then why don't just go ahead and follow us on social media uh, and tell your friends about us. We'd love uh, to get the word out about us. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe and thank you for listening.